Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. Joining me this week is Greg Nietzsche, the director of Kenyar, the single family office of Diane Eisenberg. The office manages about $450 million in capital, which it invests into marginalized, primarily rural communities. They focus on geographies and markets where commercial finance-first investing is not realistic and which, therefore, necessitates a meaningful trade-off between impact and return. Greg was previously the executive vice president of the Cleantech Group, where he led the firm's global advisory business, helping investors identify and evaluate opportunities in the energy and resource markets. Before that, he was on the management team of Get Active Software, one of the earliest online fundraising platforms for charities. I really enjoyed talking with Greg, who is always looking to push the field forward into a more impactful direction and who is never shy about expressing an opinion, even one that that may be contrarian to many in the field. During the conversation, we talk about the evolution of Kenny Art's unique impact-first approach and the important role that family offices and foundations must play in the sector. Let's jump into the conversation. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. We, we haven't talked before on the show about family offices. So could you tell me a bit about the work that you do at Kenny Arth with a maybe a high level overview of, of family offices in general? Sure. Would, would love to. Um, first, just thanks for having me. I'm a fan of uh, what you're doing with the platform, a fan of the pod. And uh, appreciate it. great to hear the diverse range of voices that you've been featuring. And um, so it's a real pleasure to be on Thank with you. you. Um, so Kenny Arth, we are the impact first single family office of Diane Eisenberg. It's a bit of a mouthful. So yeah, I hope we can get into unpacking what it means to be impact first, the role of family offices um, in the impact investing field, and Diane's very unique approach to, to lead in the office. But I guess by way of introduction... You know, I'll say that for us, this this idea of impact first means investing in geographies and communities, primarily rural places, where market rate finance first impact investing doesn't really work, and where there are typically trade offs between impact and and returns. So, as a family office, we're an office that manages. One person's money. <laughs> um, I, I think it's really the simplest way to to talk about a family office. You know, we manage uh, both Diane's personal assets as well as the Eisenberg Family Charitable Foundation. It gives us a wide range of flexible capital to to deploy, and so it's given us experience using unrestricted dollars, our foundation's endowment, our foundation's program-related investments (PRIs) for, from the foundation. So we do do a little bit of, of everything. We manage roughly $450 million in total. We do 20 to 25 deals a year between funds and direct investments, which uh, ends up being about 30 to $40 million a year in, in new commitments. So we're staying busy. We've got a team of 12, primarily out of the UK, uh, with a few of us in the States. Um, we do most all of our, our deal work in-house. We don't outsource this to advisors or other intermediaries. Um, we can maybe get into this this more, but in our opinion, there's really not a deep market yet for advisors working on these impact-first deals. 
And because we're we're invested in doing it ourselves and we, you know, want to see more capital attracted to this idea of impact first, we're always excited for opportunities like this to share our voices and share what we do with with others in the field. And how did you get into this work? I guess the story of how I got into this is uh, is one of, sort of delightful serendipity. <laughs> I, I certainly didn't grow up thinking one day I want to work for a family office. Um, I don't know don't know many who who started <laughs> life with that dream. I, I guess I barely even knew what a what a family office was when I met Diane. To be honest, I got into this field for one reason, and that reason was that I was moved and inspired by Diane. I was generally in the field of, I guess you could say, using money for good before I met Diane. I'd done an obligatory stint as a management consultant at a college and then um, had moved to the West Coast and helped build a business called Get Active Software, which was one of the earliest online fundraising platforms for nonprofits and and political campaigns back in the Howard Dean days of of internet (laughs) organizing. And um, the experience of Build and Get Active really gave me, you know, this drive, this passion for working with socially oriented, socially focused ventures. More recently, I had had helped run the Clean Tech Group, which, as the name says, was uh, (laughs) a research and advisory business that uh, worked with investors to, to find new opportunities in clean energy, renewables, um, uh, clean tech ventures. And, you know, it was while giving a, a keynote talk at a conference for the clean tech group that I happened to meet an attendee who looked entirely out of place amongst a crowd of stuffy white men in suits um, at this conference. And and that attendee was, was Diane. And she had come on a fact-finding mission about eight years ago, as she was beginning to to take responsibility for her family's assets, and we struck up a, a conversation. I guess, in retrospect, it was it was more a, a spirited argument um, about <laughs> uh, about internal Israeli politics. Um, don't yeah. ask me how we had gotten on that topic so quickly, but she and I became fast friends. And those of you who are listening and who met Diane know that, you know, she's one of a kind. She is uh, a woman of single-minded conviction, integrity, absolutely no BS. And, you know, it was immediately clear to me that this was someone who had absolute clarity on mission and direction and really just needed someone who would dive in as a as a partner to to complement to empower with you know execution skills a consultative lens and uh, perhaps above above all else a, a real deep familial loyalty and i guess i managed to demonstrate all of those um because she she offered me a job to help her start Kenny Arth. And it was really, you know, the opportunity of a lifetime that I that I jumped at. And you, you talked about the impact first strategy, but could you provide a little bit more context on Kenny Arth's investment strategy and, and how it's evolved over those eight years since you and Diane first started talking? We've certainly been on a journey since we started eight years ago. 
with a very broad mission to say, hey, how can we use our capital to have a direct impact on on people living in in poverty? And you know, eight years ago, we were very open-minded as to as to what what that would look like in in practice. And so we've experimented with it all. And I think it sort of gives us unique insight into the broader field of impact investing at the moment. I think it sort of led us to this view that the field and the tent has gotten so big as to be almost an entirely, you know, useless categorization at this point. You know, you've got a world of people who are engaged with large institutional money managers focused on ESG mandates. You've got an exploding market of what looked to me like traditional venture capital firms, clean tech firms, ed tech firms, world positive, world changing, you know, <laughs> impact stuff. And then, you know, you've got an opposite universe of people like us who are sort of toiling away trying to trying to help underserved communities get a little bit better every day, you know, mostly in partnership with with grant makers and community development agencies and international development institutions and you know, if I were an outsider just just getting into this field, you know, I'd find it all a bit a bit confusing. So I, I think along this journey, you know, we have come to sort of bifurcate this impact world into two spheres. You know, and I guess world number one is a world of people that are primarily investors. You know, something I'd personally prefer to refer to as responsible investing or or values-based investing, people who are mm-hmm. trying to make public markets work better, to diversify boards, to invest in sustainability leaders. It's a good world. And despite the fact that I, I, I might have a hint of condescension when, when I talk about <laughs> <Just a hint. laughs> that, that finance first world, you know, it's a useful world. It's one that we at Kenny Arth aren't familiar with. When when we mm-hmm. talk about eight years ago, you know, we were we were doing this stuff. You know, we built a meaningful portfolio of these sort of conventional finance first investments. You know, generation, bridges, you know, Bain Double Impact. We're in all of them. We're proud of many of them. For example, you know, we were the first committed dollar into a firm called Generate Capital, which was a seed of an idea from Scott Jacobs and Jiggershaw and Matan Friedman to build the, you know, leading financier of specialty energy projects. And, you know, we started with them first check-in. Now they're raising hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a thriving enterprise. So, you know, I think we feel good about that stuff. It did well financially. It did great financially, actually. So mm-hmm. if your goal, if your mission is to invest money and do it in a responsible way, to generate competitive market rate returns, it's good. It's a you know there's a there's a world of opportunity, but I think that what we found in doing that was that we couldn't really look ourselves in the mirror and claim that that this kind of stuff was doing the most that we could to get our capital into deeply vulnerable, deeply marginalized c- communities. So. You know, that brings us to this sort of where we got to world number two, which we think of as the world of impact first. And that's the world of people who start from the premise, not that we need to invest money and how do we do it responsibly, but who are starting from the premise that we have money and we have a certain 
mission that we want to accomplish. And we're asking, what is the most effective way that we can use money to have that impact? Much more a world of philanthropists, foundations, development agencies, and you know, a world of people investing money where, where sort of investment is a tool in an integrated toolkit of, of philanthropic interventions. And, and that's impact first. And, you know, I think we see, you know, massive need for it. I think one of the misunderstood things about this category is that we're taking on some extreme risk by, by pursuing these impact first opportunities. I think we don't you know, we don't think about it as taking on significant risks. We're we're actually mostly looking for opportunities where the risks are understood, that the perceived risk is probably more than it actually is, and that we can recycle our capital in these opportunities. The the real sort of sacrifice or concession that we make is that most of these opportunities need low-cost patient capital, lower cost than mm-hmm. any commercial or market rate investor would be would be willing to bring to a deal. So, you know, that's the world we inhabit. We hope it will attract others to to this form of of impact investing. Can you give an example of a deal that would require this type of impact first investment and and maybe what you would expect from like a financial and social impact lens? Sure. So, some of you listening might know that uh the manufactured home market or what people traditionally refer to as as the mobile home market, mobile home park market, has become uh, you know a really big target for financial investors over the past decade. It's it's seen big consolidation by large players. It's it's seen intense interest by private equity firms that see it as a really attractive yield investment, and it's an attractive yield investment because. There's a severe shortage of affordable housing in the United States. And because unlike the name mobile home would suggest, mobile homes are not particularly mobile. Owners of of the homes rent the land from park owners. And when owners buy these parks and are looking to increase returns, they begin to raise rents. And there's not much folks can, can do. It's a real captive situation that doesn't end well for residents. So one investment that that we've made that we're real proud of and is trying to radically change this dynamic is Rock USA. Rock was born out of the work of the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund, which had created a model of cooperatizing park residents to buy their own parks so they could own their own destiny. And the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund continues to do this work in New Hampshire, but Rock USA was was spun out of of the loan fund by a, a gentleman named Paul Bradley, who's now the, the CEO, to take this model nationally. And now they're working across the U.S. to help park residents cooperatize the parks. And the trick with this model and the reason that this low-cost capital is needed is that the residents still have to pay a very high price to buy the park. Fortunately, a number of states give residents a right of first refusal to buy the park when an owner wants to sell, but the price that they need to pay is being set increasingly by these financial investors that are coming in with high return expectations and have very big plans for rent increases. So they're willing to pay a relatively high high price. So 
the only way that residents are able to buy this park at the high price without raising the, the pad rents, the land rents on themselves, is to be able to borrow money at a very low cost of capital. And so that's where Rock USA and, and lenders like us come in, being able to deliver capital to them at, at very low single-digit rates that allow them to, to buy the park, to build equity in the land through the cooperative, and to keep rents affordable. And I, I think this example you know, is a really good one where that modest return expectation from an impact-first investor is able to translate directly into an opportunity, you know, that's that's feasible and has this direct economic impact into the pocket of a beneficiary. And Rocks is a CDFI, and I, you know, I think we see this with many CDFIs that we work with across persistent poverty regions in in the U.S. We built a you know pretty pretty good sized loan book now, thirty to forty million dollars of CDFI loans in persistent poverty regions, and and it's it's really this zero to three percent money that's making a huge difference to make many of these transactions possible. So you're providing debt at that low interest rate. That's right. Are there certain asset classes that that better allow for this type of impact first capital preservation? Is it generally debt that you're operating in? Yeah. I mean, in general, you know, our portfolio is heavily weighted to private investments generally and, and certainly to, to private debt. I would say that there are very limited opportunities that we see to use public market investments to drive the type of impact that we're looking for. They're not non-existent. So I think there are some things that we've begun to experiment with um, with fixed income that are getting closer. For example, we've got a very specific mandate with CCM, Community Capital Management, to invest in um, municipal bonds only in persistent poverty county codes. So particularly when there are new issuances in these persistent poverty counties, you know, we can we can trace a dollar that we've invested to to money getting into a place that we wanted to get to. But in general, yeah, we're divesting of most of our our public equity positions and and trying to use fixed income only where we really need to as sort of a liquidity ballast within the the broader portfolio. So, you know, the majority of of work we're doing is is in private debt. And th- what I would add, though, is that many many flavors of, of private debt. Some people might hear that and say, "Wow, that's a, you know, that's an incredibly concentrated portfolio um, in terms of asset class." But the reality is, we have we have broad exposure across duration. So, you know, private debt means everything from you know long term corporate debt to to very short term financing of receivables. We have, you know, broad diversification of geography and currency. You know, it's certainly a portfolio that has interest rate sensitivity since since we're doing a lot of of lending, but it's it's not as concentrated as one might believe on the surface if you heard, hey, they're they're incredibly weighted toward toward private debt. So you mentioned that at Kenny Arth, you're you're targeting a pretty specific impact area, right? You're you're tackling poverty generally in rural areas, often in emerging markets, which it makes sense that in order to create impact, it necessarily has to be concessionary. Would would you concede that there are opportunities for market rate investment in other impact areas? 
Absolutely, 100%. So, mm-hmm. you know, we by no means are are claiming that impact first is is some kind of silver bullet that is the solution to all challenges. Um, and I think that some of the the sectors that I talked about perhaps glibly earlier, you know, clean tech and and biotech and food tech, you know, these are areas where finance first money makes makes a big difference. There's no question that moving billions of dollars of institutional capital around clean energy is is making a big dent in terms of of climate priorities. So you get no argument for me that there are sectors where moving institutional scale finance first money is what's needed. You know, I think our argument is really that that is not a silver bullet either. <laughs> that mm-hmm. in places where the market is not functioning, in, in places where markets have left people behind, that this kind of low cost money is required in order to, you know, make a difference in the lives of poor, marginalized, vulnerable communities. And we shouldn't kind of delude ourselves into believing that that finance first is is this magic bullet. I, I'd also say that you know, we shouldn't ever leave behind the world of grant making. I mean, there are there are huge challenges in the world that will only be solved by grant money. And most of the things we work on in the impact first world are done, you know, hand in hand with grant makers. Many of the organizations, whether it's funds or enterprises we work with, are subsidized with grants. Many of them are nonprofits. This is not a world that that exists in in a vacuum. So I think that we need it all. I just think that we need to be clear about the strengths and limitations of different forms of capital. Given the the focus on on maximizing impact, you just kind of alluded to this. Would would it be more impactful to look at traditional grant making or are there unique opportunities for impact that are only available in this kind of concessionary for-profit area of the capital spectrum. Like I said, I, I feel like we we need it all. And I think that I think it's important for investors like us to to always assess are we using our capital in the most effective way possible. The alternative would be to do more grant making, to give more money away. And I think it's certainly a counterfactual that we are not afraid to to look at and explore. I mean, we've certainly looked at the world of cash transfers and, you know, debated, hey, are the interventions that we're pursuing with impact first money leading to a better, more sustainable economic impact for a community than a direct cash transfer? You know, I think actually Kevin Starr from the Malago Foundation, Malago is a, a very close partner of ours. We do a lot of work together. Kevin recently wrote a piece uh, sort of contemplating this, you know, impact first investment versus, versus direct cash transfers. And I think he did a really nice job of presenting that there are still some kind of questions about the persistence of the impacts of cash transfers. And so still a real good case for why, you know, this impact first form of investment perhaps provides a more sustainable impact over time. It also allows us obviously to recycle that capital and get an order of magnitude impact from the money. But again, this is not this is not to argue that it's 
it's us or that other way. It's it's that I I think that the important thing when you're thinking in this lens is is to be evidence based and to follow that evidence no matter where it goes, whether that means it's impact first or grants or finance first. To, to be to be honest and factual about what's going to produce the best impact for beneficiaries. And what does that feedback loop look like for you at Kenny Arthur? You mentioned that the investment strategy has evolved over the past eight years towards this impact first capital preservation. What what evidence has led to this current strategy? I, I think that it's the lived experience of seeing that in order for our money to get into the target communities that we want to serve, that this form of capital is required. I think one of the the key learnings that we saw early on was an experience we had in the energy access sector, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. And we had gotten involved in lending into that space you know, maybe five or six years ago at a time when many of the the businesses in the space were just beginning to raise some some early venture money just were beginning to to roll out products solar home systems solar lanterns and and the like you know i think what we saw over time was that as leading enterprises were raising more and more market rate money more western venture money in particular they were drifting up market they were moving to peri urban customers urban customers and really just you know trying to increase their customer base trying to find the best targets and you know, again i don't begrudge them for doing that i mean they were running a business they were trying to trying to grow and scale and do it do it as profitably as they could and serving difficult to reach rural markets is not the best way to build a, a highly profitable business. So what we, you know, what we observed in that sector was this sort of drift, commercial money sort of pushing this drift in customer base, still a highly impactful customer base, still a good thing to be doing, but not the target market that we wanted to serve. So that was really an early learning for us that, hey, there's there's something going on here that we need to pay very close attention to. And I think we've I think we've continued to see that play out, you know, not only in in our developing market portfolio, but also as we've begun to look at at the U.S. and getting money into persistent poverty regions, just seeing that to serve these regions, we really need to deliver capital at a at a lower cost. That sort of led us in this direction. Do you have an example of an energy access investment that you've made in sub-Saharan Africa subsequently that maybe has not seen that that impact drift that some of these like venture backed startups saw sure so one thing that we've done recently specifically to target this rural distributor model is to help anchor a new vehicle that's being set up by the team at SEMA in partnership with a company called Engaza and Engaza makes pay as you go modules for solar home systems and works with you know a lot of distributors and and a lot of these sort of smaller rural distributors that are just beginning to roll out pay as you go models and because Engaza is a is a data driven model they have very good information on payment rates and and can be real smart about which distributors are reaching customers that are not only rural and very difficult to serve but are repaying at at reasonable rates so we've made a commitment to this initial um, small pilot fund that Seaman and Gaza are working on that's getting money out to these distributors and uh, are, are real hopeful that it can 
scale pretty quickly um, because it's it's really focused on on the demographic we want to we want to see. By definition, family offices represent a, a pretty small sliver of the population, and most listeners of the show couldn't, you know, for example, replicate the the Kenny Arth investment strategy. Are there any actionable strategies that you would want to share with listeners for their own portfolios? Anything you've learned from the the Kenny Arth investment evolution that that would be relevant to more of like a retail investor? Sure. So I, I don't know if it's relevant to a to a retail investor, but I certainly feel like we have learnings that are relevant to other family offices, to to maybe smaller family offices, and certainly relevant to foundations that are beginning to think about how to approach all this. So, you know, I guess I guess the first learning for us is, you know, know what you want to do. And don't be dissuaded or pressured by advisors, consultants, you know, other intermediaries. And I think you need to have a keen understanding of what other people's incentives are and a keen understanding that they might not line up perfectly with your own and that you should really sniff those out quickly and be direct. And so I think if you're an asset owner, you know, my biggest piece of advice is you are in control, you know, use that power and, and don't back down. I would say, you know, number two is even though family offices and even foundations might represent a small sliver of this overall pool of capital, don't underestimate the impact that truly flexible capital can play in a deal. You know, that that truly flexible capital is incredibly precious and it can fill, you know, really catalytic gaps and it can get some big, big leverage on your dollars. You know, it's it's a place where even if you're only able to write a comparatively small check, a million dollars, two million dollars into a deal. And I know that that's a big, you know, a big number relative, but in the sort of family office and foundation world, that's not a huge sum. But if you can use that check to collaborate with a development institution or a larger foundation who's coming in in a senior way, you're going to unlock a multiple of of that capital. We we talk about a recent deal we did with Global Partnerships, a nonprofit impact investment firm out of Seattle that invests in MFIs and SMEs, and they've launched this Impact First Development Fund you know, there was a junior tranche of five million bucks that we and the Kellogg Foundation put in, and that unlocked fifty million dollars from the DFC. So, you know, that's incredible leverage on our dollars, even though we're a small fraction of the overall capital raised. And then I guess the the third tip that I always like to add is just just get going. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this. Uh, Herb Kelleher quote, and Herb Kelleher was the the founder of Southwest Airlines, and the quote is, we have a strategic plan, it's called doing things. And, you know, that has has really always been part of our kind of guiding philosophy from the beginning, from day one. I think Diane really preached, let's just, let's get going. You know, there's no Mm -hmm. substitute for just getting started down this path. And so, 
you know, I'd say find co-investors that that you trust. If you don't have a big diligence team and you're interested to dip a toe in the water, go go find somebody who's doing a deal that that you like and and look for some help. If you're looking at deals around, you know, rural poverty and marginalized communities and climate justice, g- give us a call. You know, we're happy to point you to some deals. You know, don't wait around to craft the perfect theory of change, the perfect perfect strategy. Just, just, just get going. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Greg, for your time. I, I always appreciate your, uh, your frank opinions on the goings on of the industry. So thank you again for joining me. Thanks, Alex. Great to be with you. Look forward to hearing from anyone out there who's interested in, in doing more around Impact First. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Greg Nietzschean of Kenny Arth. As always, you can visit our blog at SoCapGlobal.com, where we'll link to additional resources about Kenny Arth, about their various investment strategies, the article by Kevin Starr at the Malago Foundation that Greg mentioned towards the end, and some other additional resources that I think could be interesting and, and helpful for somebody who wants to learn more about impact-first investment strategies. As usual, if you could share the show with a friend, give us a good rating. We always appreciate that. Post about it on on social media and and tag us so that that we see it on there. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks with an episode with Shalini Rao from Generation Investment Management, followed hopefully by Kristen Hull of, of NIA Impact Capital, although she has some exciting news that she wants to share. So That one might get pushed back a little bit further, but regardless, we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.